Welcome to Arts Monday Symposium on Isid Radio 89.7 FM. This program takes place on the Gedigal land of the Yora Nation, traditional custodians of this land, and I pay my respect to the elders, past, present, and yet to come. My name is Ira and I will be with you for the next hour and a half. And my guest in conversation today will be Australian film director Philippa Bateman, with whom I will be talking about her film Wash My Soul in the River's Flow, which is premiering tonight at the State Theatre as part of the Sydney Film Festival. Wash My Soul in the River's Flow is a documentary about the legendary concert Kura Tungar, Songs from the River, which premiered in 2004 and was a collaboration between Australian First Nations singer-songwriters Archie Roach and Ruby Hunter and the 22-piece Australian Art Orchestra, headed by Paul Gabrowski. This concert is a subject of Batesman documentary, which goes behind the scenes of that concert's creation, interspersed with personal reflections and interviews that contextualize their beautiful music. Philippa, do we have you on the line? You do. I am here. Hi. Good morning. Hello. Good morning. The film is premiering tonight and I'm just wondering what is going through your head and your heart at this stage this morning? Um, I'm very sweaty and nervous. <laughs> um, look, it's been... I'm really excited to be able to share the film with an audience and also to kind of acknowledge the people who made the film and how the film came about because as you would probably be aware films are long time in gestation and they're mm. complex beasts in terms of the financing and the making of the film and documentaries are particularly difficult because the funding tends to be less and the amount of sort of love and care and commitment that you give the film, which I'm not saying it's less than people that get more money for films, but, you know, there's there's a lot of love and care that goes in and a lot of faith. And I think that the best thing about this film was that everyone on the film really gave it their all. Every single creative collaborator, obviously Archie Roach and Emma Donovan, but also sort of just looking back 17 years to the Australian Art Orchestra mm. who did this amazing concert that was directed by Patrick Nolan, who's a friend of mine, who brought the project, the idea of filming the concert to me in 2004. Mm. So it's got, you know, it's got a long and complicated history and it's a, I really do view it as a collaborative creation, first with the concert and the filming of the concert. And then we went and filmed on Ruby Hunter's country with her family, her brothers, Eric Richards and Jeff Hunter, and... It's emotional because Ruby died in 2010 and there's, of course, enormous regret that we didn't make the film so she was around to see it. Mm. Um, 
so yeah there's a lot there's excitement and nerves and sadness and mm. anticipation but you know there's there's nothing quite like being able to screen your film for the first time mm. in the state theatre mm. it's, it's a wonderful thing it's a privilege mm. let's go 17 years back 2004 mm -hmm. is the year yeah. when this concert this iconic concert took place the concert was called Kura Tungar meaning songs from the river and it's yes. so collaboration between Archie Roach and Ruby Hunter with the 22 piece Australian Art Orchestra where were yes. you when this happened and what were some of the most vivid memories of this event and what kind of impact this performance, this cultural event have on you? Well, just to put it in context, I had a production company at the time and I was actually financing Jindabyne, which is a feature film directed by Ray Lawrence. And of course, I was running a production company and had a slate of projects and Patrick Nolan, who is a director, theatre and opera director, and now is the artistic director of Opera Queensland, but then was directing this show with Paul Grabowski, Ruby Archie, and the Australian Art Orchestra musicians. He came to me and said, we're doing this concert, and I think it's a unique thing. It wasn't unique for Indigenous and non-Indigenous artists to work together. I mean, that had been done before, but... It was, in a sense, because it was 2004 and prior to the Australian government making the apology to the stolen generations, which wouldn't happen until 2008, there were strong feelings about reconciliation and it was, in some ways, an act of reconciliation through artistic practice. And I obviously felt very strongly about it and thought this is a great opportunity to film it. And we went ahead and did that. And we filmed the rehearsals and we filmed conversations between Patrick Nolan and Ruby and Archie that was happening before the concerts so that Patrick got an understanding of what the songs were about. So we filmed all of that. And then the opening night, which was at Melbourne International Arts Festival, and the show at that time had been commissioned by Robin Urcher, I wasn't actually in the room because I was producing and running a production company, but I was at the concert. And I remember going to the concert, and I can still now, like the hair on my arm, you know, just still stands on end because it was profoundly moving and exciting. You could sort of feel in the room that it sort of went off. You know, you can be at concerts and they're polite and people clap, but there was this almost channeling of the country and memory and feeling and I just I mean I remember sort of screaming and jumping around which I don't normally do I'm mm. fairly reserved I was sort of beside myself I felt thrilled and I felt like it was profound and I didn't I mean in many situations you have a feeling and you don't quite understand why you have that feeling so that was what I had at the time but then what happened was that we filmed it and then you know for a variety of reasons that often happen with films it didn't end up getting made, but I had all the footage mm -hmm. and it sat in my closet for 17 years or 16 years. Mm. And you said you weren't in the room when this footage was being shot. So does that mean that you actually haven't seen the footage until just recently? No, that's not what happened. I saw all the, the shot footage in 2004. I probably saw 50% of it. 
But at that time, we were cutting what's sort of known as a promo reel to go and raise mm-hmm. more money to actually make the film. Mm-hmm. So I'd seen about 50% of it. But there's a big difference between sort of watching something in a kind of hurried manner and sort of pulling material to make something as a promo reel to get funding and actually sitting with hours and hours and hours Mm. of footage, which is what I did 16 years later. Mm. And I think that experience was great because, I mean, I didn't have anyone to log the rushes because I didn't have any money. So I actually logged the rushes, Mm. which meant that there was an editor who was sitting there logging rushes for me. I actually did all that work. And I saw things that, of course, I hadn't seen before. And I spent lots of time with the footage and... You know, I never, ever want to make a film ever again without doing that Mm. Um, because, of course, it was through sitting with the footage that I knew what was missing, what we needed, and I also felt that I understood with distance why the concept was so significant. And, and yeah, so that was sort of the starting point. And the, the other sort of important technical thing to know and one of the reasons why it didn't get made and what was so frustrating was that the... It was shot on Betacam, digital Betacam and mini DV. And of course, that technology is redundant. So we didn't have anything. We didn't have the hardware, which is, you know, not to all filmmakers out there, don't ever throw out the hardware. We had the tapes, but we didn't have anything to watch it on. Mm-hmm. So part of the filmmaking process, or rather the funding process, was we had to get money to digitise all the footage before I could see it. Mm-hmm. So that's why I hadn't actually seen it since 2004. And when I saw it digitised, there's a whole other process which we then had to put it through software and same with the music to bring it up to the standards of today. And that was a whole other sort of technical journey which I won't get into. But that was how I really didn't see it until 2019. Mm. And you said that uh, you understood with the distance, looking back at these rushes 16 years later, why this concert was so significant. Can you talk to us a bit about that? What new revelations about this iconic event did you come across as you were looking back at these rushes? I think the first thing that sort of shocked and appalled me was that nothing's changed. Mm. So Archie and Ruby were talking about being listened to what I felt was that it's sort of hard to describe. When you see the film, you'll kind of understand what I'm talking about through listening to them and watching them. But they have this incredible power because they have incredible grace. (laughs) And they also are great storytellers. And they're world-class artists. So the first thing that struck me was these people are extraordinary artists and why don't I know about them and why haven't I really paid more attention to that and why doesn't the rest of Australia and the world really know? I mean, Archie Roach has a very dedicated fan base Mm -hmm. and Mushroom Records has been fantastic and signed Ruby in 93. But, you know, there's a lot that goes around the promotion of an artist and I felt particularly that Ruby really wasn't known in the way that Archie was. That was the first thing that struck me and that she is an extraordinary artist Mm -hmm. as a singer and a songwriter. Also that they talked then about the importance of looking after country and about the beauty of country and the significance of it spiritually and physically and culturally. 
and how we had to look after it because if we didn't look after country, the country was going to get sick. And I thought, well, it's a lot sicker now than it was in 2004. Mm. So mm. that hadn't been listened to in terms of environmental care and listening to Indigenous people and knowledge about that. But they just hadn't been listened to, you know, not as artists, mm. not as elders, mm-hmm. not as First Nations people who had knowledge about country and what to do. And that Australia hadn't done enough for Indigenous Australia and Indigenous people and that it was kind of still shameful. I mean, I understood at the time that when I was watching it that it was significant and they were incredible artists, but those things, all those ideas and realities and also this incredible love story, which I really wasn't aware of so much when I was watching it, but with time and seeing lots of their interactions in the rehearsal room and the way they the way they interacted with each other and that they were together for 38 years, which I didn't really understand when I was watching the concert. And I thought, you know, first and foremost, this is a love story. Mm. And it's an extraordinary one because they met each other when they were teenagers on the street. And there's been a lot made of, well, that story's been told about how they met at the People's Palace in Adelaide and they were both teenagers and they were homeless alcoholics and, you know, all of this. But actually... They found each other while they were looking for the families they'd been stolen from. Mm. And they forged these incredible artistic careers with very little support. I mean, they're just amazing. I mean, they're amazing in terms of how they loved each other and what they, the love they gave to other people mm. and to other children and to their families and to the country. So mm. they're exceptional people. Like, you feel, I mean, I, you know, I'd be surprised if a lot of people didn't feel like this, but I certainly felt like that. I sort of felt, you know, privileged to be in their presence, really. And I don't say that as a way of, you know, that they're gods and goddesses. I just mean that they're um, they're very inspiring mm. human beings. Mm. Yeah. In 1988, Archie Roach wrote a song called Took the Children Away. And this song yes. became an anthem for the stolen generation. And within the film, if I'm correct, he speaks about the healing impact that writing music had on him. Yeah. Yeah. And off stage, uh, maybe some of our listeners don't know, Archie Roach is an activist who has devoted decades of his life working with communities and with incarcerated indigenous people to encourage the storytelling careers of emerging First Nations artists and musicians. Yes. And one of the intentions and hopes behind your film is to support this work of Archie Roach Foundation. Yeah, yes it is. Archie has been doing that work for decades and he's known and revered. He's got an AM and he's been acknowledged and he's got lots of awards and he's done all of that. But I think I think the thing that is interesting in terms of continuing to support storytelling, particularly in Australia, which I think at the moment is uh, when I say struggling culturally, I, I don't think that there's a lot of support for creative artists and cultural producers in a way. And I think that, you know, a lot of our Indigenous artists are in some ways more respected internationally than they are here. And I think that tells you quite a lot. But I think also it's very difficult for young storytellers and songwriters to forge a career and to know how to do that. You know, I mean, we all, I think we take for granted. Um, I mean, certainly a, 
you know, white middle class privileged person such as myself. You know, I, I take for granted my education and my opportunities. And I think that what Archie very much wants to do through the foundation, which what we would like to support, is the, the film shows people and young Indigenous people that they can have careers as artists and songwriters and musicians. And one of the things that I know that Ruby wanted and talked about and felt very strongly about was that she wanted an Aboriginal orchestra and there mm. wasn't one at that time. I don't know if there's one now, but I, I mean, obviously I know that there's First Nations students at the Conservatorium of Music and performing arts schools and things, but I thought that was an interesting thing back then mm. that, you know, that it just didn't exist and why didn't it exist? You know, that was one thing. The other thing is that Emma Donovan, I mean, uh, so just, I mean, in terms of the foundation, we've worked with Archie and his manager, Jill Shelton, and the Archie Roach Foundation to say, use this film as you wish, <laughs> and to basically promote the idea of a career as an artist amongst First Nations mm. people. And, you know, I think that's a strong and good thing to do. And stories are very good at inspiring and instilling confidence in people and mm. it shows uh, it shows how it's done I mean the film isn't that but you can just see and also in the collaboration that it's possible and not just possible but they can be very successful and I think with Emma Donovan talks about it I mean uh, we asked Emma Donovan to come on as an executive producer because one of the main reasons was that Ruby isn't alive to talk to the film and talk about mm. the film. And we thought it was really important that we had a First Nations woman who was also an artist and a songwriter and who knew Ruby. And she ever has performed with Archie and Ruby and she was a member of the Black Armband project with them. She still performs with Archie. She's also played with Paul Kaboski. She has her own band, The Putbacks and She's very articulate about why Ruby was so important as a trailblazer for young mm -hmm. Indigenous women. Ruby Hunter was the first Aboriginal woman that she saw on Rage yeah. in a music video. The importance of actually seeing yourself in popular culture on a program like Rage was really significant because she had never seen a First Nations woman on Rage. Mm. Um, that really struck me. So... You know, we're working with Emma. Emma and Archie saw cuts of the film and they made suggestions about the order of the songs and a whole range of things creatively mm. that we, of course, collaborated with them on and listened to. And Ruby but, Hunter yeah. was the first Indigenous Australian woman to sign with a major record label. In 1993, yeah. she signed with Mushroom Records. You were mentioning them before. Yes. And she was born on an Orangery country. Yeah. And part of the film is actually shot in Naranjari country. There are beautiful meditative footages of uh, the river, the Murray River. Can you talk to us a bit about the significance of this juxtaposition between images of culture, images of the concert and interviews and behind the scenes with these images of nature? The Murray and Naranjari country is what they sing about in the concert. And one of the things that I was referring to when I said that I looked at the footage and I could see what was missing, that what was missing was country. Mm. So 
for people who haven't experienced that country, it's difficult to imagine. And I certainly hadn't. I hadn't been to that part of South Australia. I hadn't, you know, I just didn't, I didn't know what it was. I mean, I saw pictures of it, but I didn't really get it. So I felt very strongly from the beginning that we needed that country as part of the film, as integrated to the music and to their sort of feelings and lyrics and emotion that, you know, that, that, that it was not something that sort of was illustrative or sat outside the music, but that it was integral to it. And that's certainly how I directed it in terms of how we shot country. And it was difficult finding the kind of visual narrative when we were doing the editing because we didn't want it to be like inserts. It had to sit very much within the rhythm of the music. But it had to have the force because mm. that... And when you're there and when you see it, I mean, when you see the film, I think we have captured that. I think it's it's very difficult to capture. And, I mean, it's one of the great advantages. I mean, you know, I would joke about drone shots, but, I mean we couldn't have got what we got without drones because, you know, when you stand on that country, it's so flat, it's very difficult to actually see the country. And when you're above it, it's breathtaking. And there was this knowledge that Ruby had of country that she sings about and her culture that when she sings about it and talks about it and you see it, it falls together. And the other thing is the family, mm. Ruby Hunter's family were, I mean, they took us to the place that Ruby was actually taken from. And the family still has a house. They still have a home within the family. There were three houses and it's right on the edge. I mean, it's like it's on the edge of nowhere. That's what it sort of looks like and that's what it feels like. When I say on the edge of nowhere, it's just this massive, expanse of water and country and it's it's huge it's absolutely huge and you thought my goodness like you know they were cars were coming in here and stealing children you know mm-hmm. it's just it's sort of and, and there's something about seeing the scale and the scope of that country for its power but also how determined uh, white australia was at that time to mm-hmm. eradicate indigenous people yeah, through this eradication, the language was also lost, and you yeah. found it important to include Naranjari language within the film. We can see it as part of the intertitles. Can you talk to me a bit yeah. about that and uh, the fact that actually Archie and Ruby never wrote uh, songs in Naranjari language, as far as I understand, because they hadn't had the chance to, to actually learn the language? So Naranjari was Ruby's language. Archie has a different language. He has different country, but he never learned his language because he was taken when he was three years old and he was fostered to white families. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's a whole other story. Uh, Ruby was taken when she was eight years old and she'd actually had been raised by her grandparents with her siblings and they did speak Narendra. And so she had fragments of Narendra language from when she was a little girl. And when Archie met her, she would talk about Narunjari, you know, her childhood growing up by the Murray and, you know, fishing and going for swan's eggs and what her grandparents had taught her. And he was fascinated. I mean, you can still see in the film when she talks about it, his absolute 
fascination with her childhood because he didn't she she was just in that country and with her people for that much longer and he has no memory of being with his people so he had to go back and find it whereas Ruby did have this incredible memory of that and the first Aboriginal language he heard was Nurundjeri from Ruby so he has a connection to it and he talks about how they would use Nurundjeri words when they spoke to each other but they didn't speak it fluently because they didn't know it they hadn't learned it there are intertitles in the film, mostly that are quotes from Archie's book, Tell Me Why, which is his autobiography, and quotes from Ruby. And I can't remember how it came about, but I think it was Jill Shelton, Archie's manager, who said, you know, it would be good to find some way of including the Narendra language. And of course, you know, it stupid me hadn't occurred to me. And I thought, oh my goodness, yes, that would be amazing. And we spoke to Ruby's family and... Rosalyn Richards, who is Ruby's sister-in-law, offered to do the translation with Nurundjeri elders because they still live on Nurundjeri country. So Rosalyn and elders actually did the translation of all the intertitles in Nurundjeri language. And, yeah, so it's very significant because it's about seeing the language and knowing that there was a language. And, you know, to the best of my knowledge, yes, the last, fluent Nurundjeri speaker died in 1969 and but I think those languages are being put back together and there's scholarship and there's efforts but one of the reasons we wanted to do it was to have the presence of that language that even if people didn't necessarily understand it or read it or speak it fluently or hear it fluently I mean Archie would be wrote in English because that's what they'd been raised to speak but just seeing that language and knowing it existed means you can't wipe out that existence and i think that part of the what they talk about is the the strength and survival of aboriginal people and bringing back languages is part of recognizing what they had and what mm. they still have mm. You're on ESAD Radio 89.7 FM. This is Arts Monday, streaming to you from the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. My name is Ira, and I'm on call to film director Philippa Bateman, whose film Wash My Soul in the River's Flow is premiering tonight at the State Theatre as part of the Sydney Film Festival. Philippa, one of the things that I read you wrote is that this film was a life-changing experience for you, and you have also mentioned that you have learned a lot from Archie and Ruby. You spoke about listening already earlier in the show but I'm wondering what other things about their relationship to each other and also their relationship to the world around them was most inspiring to you and that you will take with you uh, as you go on um, look the listening thing is complicated because I, I think that when I say that's what I took from it and their grace which I've also mentioned their gentleness I, I mean I think what I felt and why it was life-changing is I thought, my God, I'm not very good at listening. I'm really not. I'm crap at it, you know. And I think a lot of us are like that. I mean, I don't think I'm unique in that. But they made me understand that I was bad at listening. And not because they say that, but because they ask you to listen. And the way they speak and the way they sing and the way they communicate with each other compels you to listen. And then the more you listen... There's depths and you have to think about why you're listening. You have to listen to what they're asking you to think about. And it opens up 
huge channels <laughs> to think about and reflect on and contemplate. And I just think we have so much more work to do. And I think that one of the things that people just shut down about is when people speak to them in a didactic way or tell them what they should do or tell them what mm. they should hear. And Archie really don't do that. They actually, they have an incredible openness, which means that the way you experience what they're saying is different than someone saying directly to you, you know, you should listen to this and you should do that. And it's like when I was sitting at the kitchen table of Jeff and Eric and Rosalind Ruby's family and they were talking just about what they would like and I was listening and I kept on wanting to rush in and say something and reassure and apologise. I kept on thinking, you know what, no, that's relevant. Hmm. I, I actually just have to sit here and listen and shut up, you hmm. know. And I think us well-meaning white Australians with, you know, the corollary of guilt and shame and all of that, which is just a fact, but it's not about us, really. And I think that that's what, I mean, it sounds like such a naive and um, almost shameful thing to say, but it it was really that reality that it's not about us and that if we want to do the right thing that's best for Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians, we really have to listen and give over and respect. And I don't think there's been a lot of that. And everything that Archie and Ruby do, I mean, you'll see it in the film, it's respectful, it's kind, it's generous, it's funny, it's clever, it's, you know, they're strong, um, they have views, it's not like, you know, they're soft. They just have a way of being in the world that's incredibly inspiring. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. Well, I think it's best to leave it there and actually have okay. more of a listen of their own words through their own songs, which I will continue playing throughout this program. This is their collaboration with Australian Art Orchestra and the album was released uh, a year after this concert, Kura Tungar premiered. It was released in 2005 and unlike the concert which featured 22-piece Australian Art Orchestra, this album features 10 of them. Hey, that was late. 